mean, all of these wrongful conviction cases, ultimately the system works. People do want to tell their stories. You break the law, there are consequences. Hello. Hello. Welcome to True Crime and Consequences. We're back, still talking about the West Memphis 3 case. Last episode, we were talking about the, I think we left off at the Supreme Court hearing on whether or not the West Memphis Three was entitled to an evidentiary hearing based on the DNA statute, and it was approved unanimously by the Supreme Court. And so the evidentiary hearing was scheduled for December of 2011, so about a year and a month after the decision from the Supreme Court. And the best part about it was that during this time, the original trial judge, David Barnett, who had shot down every attempt that the defense had made over the years to appeal or to try to get new evidentiary hearings or anything involving some sort of post-conviction relief, he shot down every single time. Now, the theory behind that, where the original trial judge is usually the one who is presented with any kind of future evidence or requests or post-conviction relief motions like habeas corpus petitions and those kinds of things, is because the thought behind it is that they have the most knowledge about the case. They, you know, they were the original judge, so they were there for the whole trial, the evidence, the testimonies, the whole thing. So the theory being that they're in the best position to look at anything new. I kind of see where the logic is, but on the flip side of that, like I've I said in a previous episode, judges are humans too, and they have preconceived notions and emotions involved. And so I don't necessarily think that they can always be the best judge. <laughs> no, I mean, I know they're a judge, but you know what I'm saying. Like they that maybe they can't be completely impartial. There may be some bias there. So I so the best thing that happened was that in the interim, Judge Barnett had actually been elected to a higher political job. And so obviously he was no longer a circuit court judge. So he couldn't have anything to do with it. So it was assigned to a new judge, the Honorable Judge David Lacer, who is a much nicer person. <laughs> I mean, you'll understand what I'm talking about here in a minute. So the hearing was scheduled for December of 2011. It was assigned to a new judge. All wonderful things. A new DA was assigned because the old DA, John Fogelman, had also been promoted up to a higher political position. Go figure. And that was Scott Ellington, who was now the DA in uh, Crittenden County. So everything's set. The schedule is done. We're going to have an evidentiary hearing. Yay! Everybody in the world is freaking happy because, I mean, I remember when I heard about it and I was thrilled. I was like, oh, thank God, finally. All these years, we're finally going to get a new evidentiary hearing. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, I get a notification on my phone from a friend, like, hurry, go look at CNN.com or something. I don't even remember what it was, but it was like, go look right now. It was August 19th, 2011. And there was a surprise hearing in the West Memphis 3 case. And I was like, oh boy, what's going to happen? 
Like I, I had no idea. I was actually scared because I'm like, what? What? The hearing's not until for three more months. For August, four more months. I'm like, what are we doing? What's happening? Well, the judge David Laser had said has said since that he was contacted by Scott Ellington and his office and asked if he would be willing to consider an Alfred plea. Now, for those of you who are like me, who have no idea what that means, an Alfred plea is, in layman's terms, a guilty plea in a criminal proceeding where the defendant admits that the prosecution has enough evidence to convict them of whatever the crime is, but maintains that they are innocent of the crime. Yes, I know, it sounds incredibly confusing, and it is an incredibly rare plea. And it was created in 1970 in a case called North Carolina versus Alford. And there was a gentleman by the name of Henry Alford who was indicted on first-degree murder charges in 1963 based on ear witness testimony claiming that he had admitted to committing the crime. Mr. Alford was facing the possibility of the death penalty, so he pled out to second-degree murder to avoid the death penalty. Okay? So, eventually, though, and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Eventually, he appealed and requested a new trial based on the fact that he claims he was forced into the plea deal for fear of death. Which I can see how that would inspire you to maybe do something that's not in your best interest, but at least it's better than dying. Although I have my own opinion on that. Life in prison sounds way worse to me. So if I ever did something that was so egregious that it was death penalty or life in prison, I would ask for the death penalty. You know, I don't want to prison is way worse, in my opinion. You know, kill me and let God sort it out. <laughs> you know, like that, that's just me, though. Some people are so afraid of death that they'd rather spend their entire existence in prison. So he lost the initial appeals, but eventually his case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, not just the North Carolina Supreme Court, but the U.S., the big one, the, the important one, the federal one, to the Court of Appeals. And they agreed that his plea was not voluntary. So they created what this ultimately became called the Alford plea, which is he or the defendant can admit that the prosecution, like I said, has enough evidence to potentially convict you, but that you can maintain your innocence verbally and can continue work to try to prove your innocence. Does that make sense at all? It's still, no matter how many times I read it on various legal sites and I was trying to like boil it down to its essence to try to explain it to our audience, no matter how you look at it, it's a confusing plea. Yeah. Because in 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 Mr. Yeah. Alfred's case, it did not result in a release. Like he still ended up dying in prison in 1975. So he didn't get released based on on his plea. So I don't know if like I don't it, it apparently doesn't always result in a release, but it is a way that the defendant can claim that they are innocent and tr and apparently try to prove that they are innocent while still incarcerated or not incarcerated. I mean, I guess it just depends. It's a really confusing, very rare plea that a lot of states actually don't allow, which I thought was kind of interesting when I read that. So David Lacer, the judge in the new judge in the case, was asked if he would accept 
Alfred Please from the West Memphis Three. And he said, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll accept that. So there was only there was a couple of stipulations, one on the prosecution side, one on the defense side. On the prosecution side, the stipulation was that he will accept off. Well, he'll offer and accept an Alfred plea from the three defendants, but it has to be agreed upon by all three defendants. So it can't just be, oh, Damien agrees. It has to be Damien, Jason and Jesse agree. It's all or nothing, basically. And from the defense side of it, their stipulation, which respectfully Scott Ellington agreed to, was that if they accept this plea, they get out right then. Like the day they submit the plea, they walk out of court free men. Because in some cases, when you negotiate a plea like that, or any kind of plea for that matter, it can take years for the actual release to occur. And the lawyers knew that. So they insisted that if they are going to do this, if they're going to plead guilty to walk out, they're going to walk out today. And Scott Ellington agreed to that. So at the surprise hearing on August 19th, 2011, all three men, Damien, Jason, and Jesse, took the Alfred plea. And after 18 years and 78 days of incarceration, all three of them walked out of that courtroom with a sentence of time served. But before the guys walked out with their sentences of time served, the judge, David Lacer, had some pretty awesome things to say, not only to the West Memphis Three and to the families of the victims, but that he also said some pretty rad things about the support that everyone had received over the last, you know, 18 years up till that point. So I would really like to play right now a clip of what the Honorable Judge David Lacer said in court after. The guys accepted their plea just because I really want to show that not everyone in the legal system involved in this case were insufferable assholes. Like this guy was something else. So we're going to play the clip for you right now. I'm aware of the controversy that's existed. I'm aware of the involvement of the people in this case. I don't think it'll make the pain go away to the victim families. I don't think it will take away a minute of the uh, 18 uh, years that uh, these three young men served in the Arkansas Department of Corrections. What I've just described is tragedy on all sides. And I commend people in the case that have assisted towards the end of seeing that justice is served to the best that we can do. Sometimes outside help uh, is in fact a big help. And for those of you who are who have been a participant in that regard that are here, I commend you uh, personally and publicly for uh, for having done that. What I love about that clip is, like I said, it shows that not everyone involved was an asshole. But also, Eddie Vedder said that the judge was a tremendous judge who didn't have to say what he said. And I think that's absolutely true. He did not have to say those things, but the fact that he acknowledged all the love and support that everyone had been getting over the course of this this situation was just so special, and I really wanted to highlight that. So obviously, I don't think Judge Lacer is going to be listening to this, but sir, if you are, my hat is off to you. I have nothing but respect for you. Thank you for acknowledging 
just everything and how messed up that whole situation was. And um, I kind of wish the guys had decided to go to trial because he would have been the judge. And it would have been very interesting to see how it would have played out. On the flip side of that, I understand why they took the plea. Because the alternative options, considering they were trying to kill Damien and trying to keep Jason and Jesse in for their whole lives, you know, it wasn't it wasn't worth the risk. Now, it wasn't an easy road to get there, though, because after the offer was made, obviously Damien immediately agreed to it because he has the most to lose. He's on death row. He's been on death row for 18 years and 78 days. Ten years of that was in solitary. His health was failing. He was developing arthritis. His eyesight was failing. He was starting to have you know, issues with some of his internal organs because of lack of sunlight, lack of exercise. I mean, 10 years in solitary, he saw the sun for like an hour a day at most. And he also wasn't around other people, so it was starting to affect his mental health as well. As if 18 years and 78 days on death row isn't going to affect your mental health, 10 years on freaking solitary confinement will definitely do it. So he agreed immediately. It was taken to Jesse. Jesse agreed immediately. I mean, there was no question, okay, yes, we're, we're going to do this. Then it went to Jason. Jason didn't want to do it. Jason wanted to wait for the evidentiary hearing in December. Uh, everyone was pretty sure they were going to get a new trial. But that could take years. And on top of that, it's still a risk. Because even if they go back to trial, even with all the evidence they have, there's still that slim chance that they could have been convicted all over again. And still, you know what I mean? There's still that slim chance. Yeah, it's, it's still a gamble. So this, and Jason even said in the press conference after accepting the plea, that he didn't want to do it. He wanted to keep fighting. He wanted to go to that evidentiary hearing and all that jazz. But he flat out said, but they're trying to kill Damien. So I did it for him because he needed to get out. And then they hugged each other and I cried because they hadn't been able to hug each other in 18 years and they were best friends and it was the sweetest thing. Best friends for life, Damien and Jason are, obviously. Like, it was just the sweetest thing. But Jason did it strictly for Damien. But there's still a lot of work to be done. They're out, okay? They're out. They're out living life. Damien lives in New York, I think. Jesse's still in West Memphis because his whole family is there. Jason lived uh, for a while in Seattle and now he lives in Texas. Um, and he actually has a nonprofit now that helps. He's helping other people who have been wrongfully convicted. He is working really, really hard to try to help other people like him who were drugged through the mud and treated like crap and thrown away like trash. Because let's be realistic. That's exactly what happened here. And that's exactly what happens in so many other cases. These were the weird kids in, in class. They were singled out because they were the weird kids. They were, you know, drug through years of mud and then thrown away like garbage. Damien was, Damien was at the verge of being murdered by the state every single day for 18 years and 78 days. And he maintains that the only reason he's not dead right now is because of HBO. That's probably true. If they hadn't brought attention to the case, there wouldn't have been so much. They would have. They would have killed Damien. They would have killed Damien. They would have locked up Jason and Jesse for the rest of their lives. It would have been swept under the rug, and nobody would have known anything about it. 
It would have been a blurb and no one would have cared. They put those Satanist kids away. Exactly. And I absolutely agree, but it wasn't just HBO. HBO started the movement, but the rest of us continued the movement for almost 20 years. And we still, to this day, continue the movement. We're now 27 years out, and we're still fighting for full exoneration for the West Memphis Three. We are still fighting for justice for Stevie, for Michael, for Chris, for Todd and Dana Moore, for Pam Hicks, formerly Hobbs, for Mark Byers. And for the memory of his wife, Melissa Byers, we are constantly fighting to make sure that they get justice, that the person who actually or people who actually did this pays. Because not only will it exonerate the West Memphis Three, it will allow Stevie and Michael and Chris to finally actually rest in peace because they'll have justice. And there's still lots of people fighting for it. Lots and lots of people are still fighting to force the state to do the right thing. There's a gentleman named Bob Ruff, who has actually a true crime podcast, who just put together a documentary called The Forgotten West Memphis Three, and it was focusing on the victims. Now, granted, I count Damien, Jason, and Jesse as victims, but the real victims, the murdered victims, those eight-year-old little boys who lost their lives that day, they kind of get forgotten. In the they or not forgotten, but shoved into the background because the focus for so long has been on exonerating the guys, you know. So the kids kind of get, yeah, they were they were the victims, and then you you move on to Damien and Jason and Jesse, and it's like no 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 no. As much as I love Damien and and Jason and Jesse, I want those little boys to have justice, and so Bob Ruff. Did this documentary to talk about, you know, where we're at now and what's happening with the case now and trying to get justice for the little boys. And, you know, he kind of leans into the Terry Hobbs theory, too, like most people do now. And it's not because we're like, oh, Terry did it. No, not at all. We're just, can we eliminate? Can we actually go through the process of trying to eliminate him? There's a lot of reason there to insist that they're be some pushing in that area. You either eliminate, figure out you can eliminate him or not. Right. But the fact that he was but, never adequately looked at in 27 years now is insanity to me. I mean, you know, he... But who's going to do the looking? Well, and that's why it's it's good that we have people like Bob Ruff who are still digging. And in fact, I have a bit of a rallying cry to finish this off with. And that is the fact that in the course of him investigating all this West Memphis 3 stuff, you know, there's new information that has come to light. The basics of it is that there was even evidence. So back in 2007, when they were doing all of the new DNA testing that found the ligature hair and the tree stump hair, there were also a whole lot of swabs collected. So when, when, Forensic experts go in to do their investigations and they get bodies. They tend to take these big, long Q-tip things and they swab pretty much all over the body to see if there was any, like, someone had, you know, touched them or bled on them or spit on them or, you know, whatever the case may be. And on one of those swabs, a partial DNA sample was found that wasn't enough to get a 
full DNA profile on. That's why I said partial DNA, but it was enough to rule out known suspects, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? To to rule out... Okay, so it didn't match any known suspects. Including Terry Hobbs. And we're positive it was human DNA? Uh, I'm going to assume so. <laughs> Just saying, because they were in the water around. No, and animals. that's absolutely true. Um, but I'm assuming that would have been... Uh, you'd think that would be... That would be information I would have been told. Yeah. Um, so they found partial DNA that did not match any known suspect. So it didn't match either of the three West Memphis Three. It did not match Terry Hobbs. It did not match David Jacoby. It did not match Mark Byers. They were all eliminated as the producer of that DNA. However, I don't know if they have tested all of the police that were involved in the recovery effort of the bodies and the evidence. I don't know if they've eliminated the medical exam. I mean, there is a possibility because they were waiting around in the water trying to find the bodies, you know, that one of the police might have inadvertently put his DNA on. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that is a possibility. And I don't know if those samples have been compared yet. But it's the point being is it's just there's there's places to look. There's people to look at. There are still people who need to be eliminated as suspects, Terry Hobbs. So, like, there's still so much work that needs to be done. And Bob Ruff has requested all the evidence from Scott Ellington's office so it can be retested. He's going to pay for it with, I'm sure, help with from some donors. But he wants all the evidence so it can all be retested. And he has called and called and emailed and tweeted and done everything he can to contact Scott Ellington's office. And the guy can't even be bothered to respond to an email, much less return a phone call. And after the Alfred plea was entered and, and the West Memphis Three were released from custody, he made a promise publicly on television, live television, that if anything came up evidence-wise or any new suspects were identified or persons of interest were identified, that he would look into it. He made a promise, not only to the people, to the families of the victims and to the community of West Memphis, Arkansas, he made a promise to the country, to the world, that he would look into it. And now someone wants to look into it further because of some new information, and he can't even return an email. So we need to put pressure on Scott Ellington and tell him, no, demand that he release the evidence. So it can be retested because this crime deserves to finally be put to bed. These children deserve justice. Their families deserve justice. And Damien and Jason and Jesse deserve to get their names back, to have full exoneration. Jason wants to be a lawyer, but he can't because he's a convicted murderer in the eyes of the law. Jesse has had it rough because we already know he's mentally incapacitated on some level. And so he has a hard time, you know, keeping a job, even getting a job because of his record, but then keeping it because of his mental capacity issues, which wouldn't have been, which wouldn't be an issue if he could be fully exonerated and get adequately compensated for all that time he lost. 
if that makes sense. And Damien could finally just, I don't know, breathe a sigh of relief that not only is he no longer sitting in prison on death row, but his name's been cleared. I mean, luckily, Damien has managed, Damien and Jason especially, have managed to be very successful after they were released. I mean, Damien has his own businesses. He's an accomplished artist. He's a writer. In fact, I'm listening to uh, one of his autobiographies, Life After Death, um, on Audible right now. And because uh, I just haven't really had the energy to read, but it's been fun listening to it, especially since he is the narrator. He's reading it himself, which is kind of cool. And he's a very eloquent writer and a, and a really brilliant storyteller and has a really interesting story to tell because it's all his perspective, which is kind of nice to hear. You know, so they've managed to be pretty successful, but they haven't been able to reach the level of success that either of them have wanted because they're still convicted murderers in the eyes of the law. Not in the eyes of any normal human being anymore, but in the eyes of the law. And poor Pam, you know, Pam Hicks, Stevie's mom. Every time I see her face, I start to tear up because that woman still to this day, 27 years later, is in a level of pain that I can't even imagine. Because the reality is she doesn't know who killed her son. And the reality is that there's a chance that she was married to the man who killed her son. Possibly. Her words, not mine. You know, like, there's just still so much unknown that needs to be sorted out before any of this will truly be over for any for anyone involved, including law enforcement. Because we're not going to stop bugging them until they actually do their job. So if they want us to go away and shut up, fine. Hey, West Memphis Police Department. Hey, Scott Ellington. Do you want us to shut up and go away? Because we're more than happy to shut up and go away if you'll do your fucking job. You know? Do your job. Release the evidence so it can be retested and then look at anything we find. It's not that hard. Except for one thing, absolutely none of them will ever admit that they were wrong, right? I mean, even if we can prove, like, even if we can prove who did it, I don't know that they'd be willing to admit that they were wrong at this point. Like, what do you think? Well, I mean, they pretty much have already said they don't make mistakes, so. Oh, yeah. Go back and listen to that uh, David Raup clip that we played in the last episode. You're... They think they're omniscient. They think they're godlike and can't make mistakes, apparently. It's insane. Absolutely insane. But the the scariest thing about this whole case, like, I mean, now that we're kind of caught up to now, but there's still work to be done, but we're we're caught up to now, is that this could happen to literally anyone. What happened to Damien and Jason and Jesse happens to someone every single day, first of all. I want to make that clear. This is not this this was big this was a big case in the media because of the HBO documentaries and the celebrity involvement and all of that. But this is in no way like an isolated incident. This kind of thing happens to somebody in this country every single day, possibly multiple somebodies in this country every single day. People are wrongfully convicted all the time and people are accused of things they didn't do all the time. So that's really the lesson I think we need to take away from this, this case in particular, is that, you know, you can't just trust what the police tell you, what the justice system tells you, 
Also, I think this is a really good example of never, ever, ever talk to the cops about anything without a lawyer. Even if you are absolutely sure you're innocent and there's no way they will point the finger at you. Yeah, because I mean, they might. And I know some people, even my own grandmother has said, well, but if you refuse to talk to them, doesn't that make you look bad? And I said, I don't give a shit. I don't care what they think of me or of you or of anybody else for that matter. What I care about is that you're treated fairly and you're not manipulated into doing something that's against your own self-interest, which they will use every tactic in the book to manipulate you into doing that. So never, ever talk to the police without a lawyer. I'm talking to everyone here. I'm talking to you about your grandma, you, your teenage children, your 10-year-old children. I don't care who you are, how old you are. You ask for a lawyer. The second they say they're hauling you in, because believe me, they'll start asking you questions that very second. You ask for a lawyer and then you zip your lip. Because I guarantee you, you'll be sitting in that interview room and your lawyer is going to tell you not to answer 99% of their questions. And that's exactly how it should be. And those are your rights. That should be made clear, too. Those are your rights under the law, both federal and state in every state in the country. You have the right to remain silent and you have the right to an attorney. It's right there in the Miranda rights, but some people don't really listen. But you have a right to not say anything and ask for a lawyer and then speak through your lawyer. I don't care if you're guilty or not. You could be guilty of sin. They could have caught you with a gun in your hand. You still need to ask for a lawyer, <laughs> you know, because there's probably some kind of extenuating reason why you had a gun in your hand and why you did what you did. But the cops aren't going to care. But the lawyer will call a lawyer or have them get you one if you can't afford one. That is also your right. Because I've heard people go, well, I'm broke. I don't have any way to afford a lawyer. And that's why they will provide you with one if you can't afford one. And having a court-appointed attorney, even a crappy one, is better than having no attorney. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this case. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done on this case. But we can take a little bit of solace in knowing that at least Damian Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., and Jason Baldwin are out in the world living life as best they can until real justice happens. And it may never happen, let's be realistic, but they're no longer in prison and the specter of death is no longer hanging over Damien. And I think to me, that's like the most important thing. And that goes back to what we were talking about, I believe, in the first episode, which is until we can be sure, or in our introduction episode, until we can be sure that these things will not happen anymore and that innocent people will not be convicted of crimes that they didn't commit, and certainly that innocent people won't be sentenced to death for crimes they did not commit, then the death penalty needs to be abolished because it's just not worth the risk. Because like I said before, every human life has value, even if you consider them to be a bad person. They have value. And they're valuable to someone. Everyone has somebody that loves them. So until that can change, until the system can change, which I don't believe is possible because I, it, it can't just suddenly become a perfect system where no injustice ever happens. It's, you know, I've, I've read too much about the history of the law in this country, and it's been flawed since day one. So there is no way to ensure that. So 
I guess my point is the death penalty needs to be abolished, and it needs to be abolished permanently in every state. Now, this is just my personal opinion. You may agree or disagree with me. Some people are going to come back at me and say, Ted Bundy deserved to die. Yeah, you're probably right. He did. But he could have died in prison at 97 years old, and that would have been fine with me, too. You know what I mean? Like, just if, if they truly are guilty, then life without parole is fine. But as long as there's a risk that for every Ted Bundy, there's 50 Damien Eccles, forget it. I can't, I can't co-sign that. And no one else should either, in my opinion. So that was the West Memphis 3 case. There was a few things that I kind of left out. I gave you what it was essentially the Reader's Digest abridged version of the case. Because let me tell you, if after going through all of it, going through case files online and do it, you know, it would have been like a year's worth of weekly episodes if I had given you every single detail. So if you're interested in the case and want to know even more of the like nitty gritty little details, there's so many really great resources online. Um, there's also so many great document documentaries that you can watch that are really informative. So if you if you're interested, that is all available for free, you know, just to watch at your leisure. Damien's written several books. Jason wrote a book. So those are really great resources. And, you know, if you're not interested, that's cool, too. Like, I just want to make sure that everyone kind of keeps their hearts and, and minds open to realizing that our system is not perfect and that we need to go to bat for our fellow human beings when they're being treated unjustly. And I don't just mean by the justice system. I mean, just in general, that we need to really, you know, go to bat for these people and, and make sure that their stories are told. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing here is to make sure these stories get told, the lessons get taught, and that maybe eventually true justice can be found just across the board. So I really, 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 I mean, I know we both do appreciate you guys listening. And I hope you've enjoyed this as much as we've enjoyed making it. So yeah, I guess we're done, honey, with the West Memphis Three. And we're going to move on to our next case now. Okay. So that's going to be fun. Anyway, I'm really excited. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we will see you in the next one. Bye. Bye. Ultimately, the system works. Consequences. <laughs>